Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And uh, people were furious about this. 
one of the nerds I follow on Twitter, he ranted, and his tweet ended up being retweeted, and it was liked like a million times. He said, that's not how the force works. Well, well guess what, Starfan02-6548? Like, if the writers say that's how the force works, that's how it works. Like, the fans don't get to decide that. And I think sometimes, like, disgruntled fans, sometimes we think, God doesn't work like that. We're like, oh, I just blew up and I'm stuck in space, and God's not going to come through for me like this, because God only works in certain ways. Jesus only works in certain ways. And perhaps the theological box we draw for him. We're like, Jesus is only going to act like this because this is what I've seen him do, and this is what I'm comfortable with, and if he does anything else, it's going to weird me out. Or maybe it's an experiential box where we say, I've only experienced God like this, so no one else can experience God in any other way. Maybe it's a political box where we say, Jesus only supports this group, but not this group. Jesus only supports this, but not that. He always operates like this and never like that. He loves these people and hates those people. He blesses these people and punishes those people. All these things are, we're, we're drawing these little boxes and we're saying, God can only work in this way that I understand. We're essentially saying, he's the son of a carpenter, he's not the son of God. He's going to work in these ways that we expect him to. He can work with wood, but he can't work in this new, unexpected way. And so when I look at why were these people's faith in Nazareth, in Jesus' hometown, these people who knew him best, why was their faith so small? And I think it was because they had a limited view about who he was and what he would do and what he could do. And I think the danger for us is, people sitting in churches, sometimes we can be so familiar with Jesus, we've drawn a really small box around him, and we expect him to work in ways that we understand, ways that we expect, ways that we have we limit what God wants to do with a narrow imagination about how he works. I don't know why God does this, but God in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom, he asks permission before he works in our world. Why do we have to pray? Why doesn't God just do stuff? You know, but it says, when you pray, ask for what God would want. Why does, if he wants it, just do it. Why does he have to ask my permission? Somehow, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, he says, I want humans to ask for it before I do. And sometimes we don't ask for something because we have such a narrow view about what Jesus will do and how he will work and what he's really interested in that we limit what God wants to do by having a limited view of how we believe that God works. And sometimes we look at what God's doing in another church or in another state or in another country and we say, that's not how God works. That's not how the force works. You know, that's not how this is supposed to happen. Give Jesus the creative freedom to surprise you in your life and in your community. When we say God will do this but not that, I think God's amazed at our lack of faith. When we say, oh yeah, yeah, that will happen, that will work, that makes sense. They have money, they have talented people, no wonder why that works. That won't work over here. Like, when we draw those small boxes for God, I think he's amazed at our lack of faith. Just like Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith in his home. In Ephesians 3.20, Paul reminds us that Jesus is able to do infinitely more than you can ask or think or imagine. Now, I can ask and think about a lot. I can even imagine a lot. But God's bigger than that. God can do more than that. He's not limited by the size of my imagination. He wants to do more than I can even imagine. And so Jesus, I think, is amazed at our lack of faith when we box him in with limited expectations. But Jesus is also amazed in Scripture, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, when we exercise incredible faith. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse, um, sorry, I lost my verse here. 
Um, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Well, I completely lost where I was. But anyways, no matter what verse we actually start in here, it says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help, and he said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to his followers, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that now, Capernaum here, in contrast to Nazareth, where Jesus was born, Capernaum was Jesus' adopted city. This is the city where Jesus spent most of his life um, once he became an adult. And from here, this was the base for all the ministry that he did in the three years before he was crucified. Uh, Capernaum was a village of roughly 1,500 people. And one day, he's here in his adopted hometown, and this centurion comes up to him and says, I have a sick servant, will you heal him? Luke 7 gives us a little bit more detail into this strange request. And this was strange because the Jews hated the Romans, and the Romans hated the Jews. This centurion is here to keep the Jews in line. This is essentially like having an army there stationed to make sure you don't rebel. And here he is coming to Jesus, a Jewish religious teacher, and saying, will you heal my servant? In Luke 7, it tells us that the Jewish elders told Jesus that this centurion was a friend and was kind to them and had actually built a synagogue for the Jews in the city. Modern archaeology has revealed that synagogue is still partially standing there in ancient Capernaum. I think we have a picture here. That's the synagogue that this centurion actually built. And so these are real-world people in a real-world place. So I did a little bit of research into centurions because I don't really know that much about them and I was interested. A centurion, we think the name probably sounds similar to the word century, right? In fact, they were actually called century sometimes because that number means 100 in Latin. And so when you think of 100 years as a century, a centurion commanded 100 men, 80 soldiers and 20 servants and orderlies. They were a career military officer in the Roman Empire. They were paid very well, and they were expected to be great soldiers. Vegetus, a Roman historian, said this, and that name's not made up. His real name was Vegetus. I read that and I was like, really? Sounds like a Dragon Ball Z character. The centurion, according to Vegetus, is always chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing missile weapons, his skill in the use of sword, and his expertness in all military exercises. He must be diligent, temperate, active, and ready to execute orders. He must not be one who talks, but one who does. He must be strict in exercising and keeping proper discipline among his soldiers, and must oblige them to appear clean and well-dressed and have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright and ready for battle. And so what Vegetus was saying was, I can't say that with a straight face, but what he was saying is centurions were very disciplined 
people. They would take any command from the Roman Empire seriously. They wouldn't ask questions. They would do it. And so this Roman oppressor, this Roman conqueror, comes to Jesus and says, I have a sick servant. And Jesus says, do you want me to come and heal him? Jesus is like, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, no, no, no. Just say the word and heal him. I'm a centurion. I have servants. And when I say the word, my servants listen. He's essentially saying, the whole world is your servant, Jesus. Just speak and the world will listen. I know when I speak, my servants listen. When you speak, the world will listen. And then Jesus makes this powerful response here. He says, no one in Israel, the nation that's supposed to be waiting for the Messiah, the nation that's supposed to know God, no one in Israel has as much faith as this man. And then he says this, that in the kingdom, in his kingdom, Roman killers will sit down at the table with those who think that they belong will be cast out. That's what he says here. He says, there will be people who sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But some of the people who think they're going to be there will actually be cast outside. Because they don't get it, but this man gets it. They wouldn't expect a Roman killer to sit down with Jesus in his kingdom. They would expect that the Jewish people would do that. But he says, you know what? This man understands who I am better than you do. And then Jesus sends the man away, and instantly the servant is healed. So I started digging into this and thinking, okay, so Jesus is amazed at this guy's faith. I'm like, why? Like, what is so great about this man's faith that is so impressive that it shocks Jesus, that Jesus makes this profound statement, this guy has the greatest faith in the entire nation? Wouldn't that be cool if Jesus came to you and he's like, hey, just so you know, you have more faith than everybody else in the nation. Of course, then you'd struggle with pride, and you know, you'd have to wrestle with that. But no, I mean, that'd be really cool. I want Jesus to say, Alex, your faith shocks me. It amazes me. It impresses me. So what about this guy impresses Jesus so much? So I started thinking, maybe it was his compassion. In verse 6, it says the Romans, uh, it says that he was compassionate on his sick servant. Now, the Romans prided themselves on being unfeeling, killing machines. And so to kill, uh, for, to feel for your servant, not to kill your servant, but to feel for your suffering servant that could be easily replaced was surprising. That's not usual for a Roman centurion. So I was thinking, maybe it was his compassion. And then I looked at verse 8, and I said, well, maybe it's, it's his humility, because a Roman could walk up to a Jew and command them to bow down to them. They could command them to carry their military gear, but you would never see a Roman bow down to a Jew, and yet this man approaches Jesus and bows down and says, Lord, he gives them this title of authority and says, will you heal my servant? What if other Romans saw him? He's the centurion. He's in charge of protecting the city. If they saw him bowing down to a Jewish religious leader, surely that would affect his standing or people would talk. And even when Jesus said, let me come, he says, no, my house is not good enough for you to come to. Romans were known to be arrogant. They were known to be confident. He was likely an accomplished military leader. And that makes his humility all the more surprising. So I said, okay, maybe he's compassionate, maybe he's humble, maybe this is what Jesus was surprised by. Also, his background is unexpected, right? The Jews knew God. They were the ones who were waiting for God. They were eagerly waiting for the Messiah, this promised one from God who would restore the relationship between God and man. If anyone should have faith, it should be the people who've known God and have been waiting for God to show up. But instead, it's this Roman who didn't fit the expected narrative. Maybe your background, you're like, man, my background isn't in Christianity. 
Christianity, it's not in church, and uh, that doesn't mean that you're excluded from having a faith. Maybe your background makes you think you don't fit in with God's people. Well, the good news is the guy from the wrong background, this Roman killer, impressed Jesus more than the people who grew up around the message of the church. Now, I think all these things are good, but as I was going through these, I was like, I don't think this is why Jesus was impressed with this man's faith. I think he was compassionate and he was humble. He is from an unexpected background, but I don't think that's the key element of what made his faith so impressive. I think what impressed Jesus about this man's faith is the man didn't have to see the miracle to believe in He didn't have to see Jesus do something. He didn't have to see Jesus go somewhere. He didn't have to see Jesus say something or wave his hands or be there standing over the sick man to believe that Jesus could do something, that something was happening. The centurion told Jesus that when he says something to someone under him, instantly believes that it's done because he commands them. He doesn't have to follow up and wonder if they're going to do it. And he says, I know that Jesus, you have more authority than I do. So if I don't have to wonder when I command somebody to do something, I know if you say you're doing something, then I can believe it because you have more authority than me. If Jesus says he's working, the centurion believes it. He doesn't have to see Jesus working to believe he is working. That's what faith is. Even when our eyes can't see Jesus working, we believe he is working. In John 20, 29, Jesus says to his followers after he's resurrected, he says, You only believe because you see, but those who believe without seeing will experience God in a way you've never had. How many times do I have to see something in order to believe? I'm like, God, just show me a little glimpse, because otherwise I'm going to give up. If you don't show me a little glimpse, I'm not, I'm not going to keep going. I need to see something. I like to know that when I'm acting on faith that I'm not wasting my time. I don't need to see everything. God, just show me a little bit. Like, let me know that something's happening. I think of the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and they're marching around this city for seven days, and during those seven days, nothing happens to the walls. A lot of times what I'm hoping is when I'm marching around something, I'm working hard at something, I'm wanting to see something happen, I'm like, let me see some cracks. Let me see a few stones falling off. Like, let me know that something is happening. Not everything has happened yet, but something is happening. But this centurion is like, I don't need to see anything to believe everything that you've said. A lot of times, if I don't get to see a little bit about what God is doing, I start to give up. I feel like it's pointless. And too often, I feel like as followers of Jesus, we act where we can see the most fruit, instead of where we can exercise the most faith. We try to go to places where we're like, okay, we're going to see a lot of results there, and it won't require a lot of faith because we're going to see the results. Instead of going to the places where we might have to work hard and not see a lot because God's doing unseen things. We like to point to some accomplishment to make our sacrifice for God feel worthwhile. But God wants us to trust that he doesn't waste the sacrifice, even if the results come long after we are gone. A lot of times, we want God to work in our lifetime so that our name can be attached to it, but many times God is working over generations, and we get to play a small part in a much bigger story. Billy Graham, who preached between, before tens of thousands of people, he said, man rewards fruitfulness. God will not reward fruitfulness, he will reward 
And many times we look at somebody, and if they're before a big crowd or they're having a big impact, we think, oh man, God's showing up. Because mankind rewards fruitfulness. We want to see it. But God rewards faithfulness. Those who keep doing what's right, even if they don't see the result. And so the centurion didn't need to see Jesus work to believe he was working. Too often I look and I'm like, I need to see some milestones. I need to see some progress. I need to see that something is happening to affirm me instead of faithfully doing what I know is right regardless of the results. A faith that makes Jesus marvel doesn't need to see results to remain faithful to what God has asked. Now, just to be real, like sometimes I want Horizon to be successful to affirm what I think about how church should be. I mean, I'm just being honest with you, being transparent as I can. I, God's given me a vision for church that's more about relationships than religion. I want to help stuck-in-the-mud old religious people who lead other churches. I want to tell them, look, I'm right. This is how churches should be. We should move past some of these things and get to where we're building relationships with people. But every time I try to have a conversation with somebody like that, and I'm like, hey, I think these things would help your church. They say, how many people you got in your church? Like, well, it's, it's not a lot of people. They're like, well, I don't want to listen. Well, God, help me to be successful. Help me to see it so I can tell these people and I can affirm what I think and really show them that I'm right. So I cried out to God and I'm like, God, I want to see this church be successful so people believe what I have to say. And then over and over again, more and more, God whispers back to my soul, if I never let you see success, will you faithfully do what I ask? The sanctuary that amazed God. Faith says, I don't have to see it succeed to believe it is true. Over and over again, Jesus gave those with little faith small steps to keep moving forward. Have you ever wondered in the story of Jesus as he's healing people, um, why he does some unusual things? Like sometimes he's like, hey, you need to go wash in that pool over there. Why? Like he could have just killed him right there. Or he says, you know what? Pick up your mattress and then you'll or, like, you're blind? Let me rub some mud on your eyes, and then you'll be healed. Did Jesus need to do those things to heal those people? No. But they needed to feel something. They needed to do something. They needed to see something in order to believe. The centurion didn't need a step to believe. He didn't have to feel something to believe. He didn't have to touch the scar in Jesus' side to believe. He just believed. I want that kind of thing. A faith where I don't have to see it to believe it. I want to believe it even if I don't feel it. I want to believe it even if I don't see it. I want a faith that doesn't have to see anything in order to believe everything that Jesus promised. So how do we get it, right? That's what we've been trying to figure out in this series over the last few weeks. So how do we get that kind of faith? How do we get an unshakable faith? Well, I think it starts with wanting to, to tell Jesus, like, I don't want the faith that shocks you because of how small it is. I want a faith that doesn't have to see it. I want a faith that you don't have to help me feel things or see things or have results in order to believe it. I want to trust you no matter what. And then I think it comes to asking for it. Many times I think we simply do not have because we do not ask. And then I think it comes down to a point where if I say I want this kind of faith and I'm asking for this kind of faith, I need to decide now that I'm going to praise him when he doesn't let me see the results. 
If I say, God, I want to have a faith that doesn't have to see it to believe it, and then I don't see it, I can't complain. I have to praise. So I put into your seats the four questions that we ask each week. What did you hear? What do you need to do? When will you do it? And who will help you? I think sometimes we can just ask those questions, and they just, we're like, yeah, those are good questions. But sometimes if we have them on a piece of paper, we have to actually think about, how does this apply to me? How does this impact me? How does this change me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of the centurion. And Lord, forgive me for so often having a small faith. A faith that probably shocks you at how small it is, instead of shocking you at how steadfast it is. God, I pray that you will help me to have a faith that doesn't have to see it, to believe it. Who will keep doing what's right, regardless of the results. Who will faithfully seek you and serve you. Forgive me for the selfishness in my heart that I want to succeed so that I can tell other people how it is. Lord, forgive me for that. And I pray that you will help me to faithfully serve you regardless of the results. That you will make us a people like the centurion who honestly don't have to see it to believe it. Who trust you at your word and take you in. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're